Hello everyone, I'm Phil Dickens and this is From the Hill of Megiddo, the podcast serialisation of my book of the same name. In the last episode, we were witness to a blood sacrifice in the ancient ruin of Tel Megiddo and met Miles Darheen just before we found a friend murdered. So let's dive into the next three chapters. Chapter 2. It is the early hours of the morning, still dark. The strong fire fills the air of the roundhouse with thick smoke as inside the mud walls and thatched straw roof, a child is born. Kiva finishes pushing, and almost immediately the child starts bawling, grasping at the air. Puth feels all the tension and worry drain out of him, looking at the child's face. It's a boy, his son, and they agree to call him Dahi. He is their new beginning, everything that has passed before now little more than a dark memory to put behind them. The wide eyes of the infants are open upon a new life. But that isn't how it happened, he remembers. What came next? No sooner does he recall the events that followed the birth than the dark shadow appears at the door. Tall, broad-shouldered, with long brown hair and a face that closely resembled Puth's own. Hello, little brother, he says, as if he were just there for a casual visit and there was nothing unusual about his presence. Noadu, how? Puth asks. But he knows how. Back then, the creature that his brother had become was called a son of Cain. Noadu is no longer alive, no longer human. He has eyes only for Puth. He forces him to his knees, opens a vein, makes him drink. Only then does he remember the woman and the child. Dahi is spared, the smallest of mercies. Kiva is not. Their blood splatters Puth's face, and he cries out in sorrow and despair. I'm sorry, Puth, but this was necessary. Why? Because there are some fates worse than death, brother. Then he grins, and in an instant he is no longer human. Eyes red and wings spread wide. They are not in the roundhouse anymore, but on top of a hill, surrounded by the ruins of an ancient fort. Puth remembers it. But the last time he stood here, it was not Nuadu who stood opposite him. Nuadu, how? I was always coming back, little brother. Why? There are some fates worse than death. Puth sat upright as soon as his eyes opened. He could feel the sweat soaking through his hair and running down his neck and back. He jumped out of bed, shoved the bedroom window open, and went straight into the bathroom to set the shower running. It was just a dream he told himself, but his heart and his breath refused to slow. He knew differently. He got in the shower, closed his eyes and let the hot water run over him. When his arms and legs stopped shaking, he opened his eyes and blinked against the light in the bathroom. He washed and dried quickly, then went back into the bedroom to get dressed. Nuadu's words wouldn't leave his mind. I was always coming back. Are you sure? Jack MacArthur asked just as he heard the latch on his front door go. He stepped out into the hallway as his wife Abby entered and waved at her. I'm afraid so, Abelard said on the other end of the phone. The state of Telmegado this morning is testimony to that. Taking a note of the mobile phone in his hand, Abby came over and gave Jack a quick peck on the cheek. Tea? she mouthed. He nodded. On the phone, he said. How bad? I mean, earthquakes aren't unheard of over there, are they? No, 
but it is clear, even from the initial evidence, that this was no ordinary earthquake. They were already saying this was a 10 on the Richter scale, and the hill of Megiddo was becoming a crater. Yet the surrounding area, including the kibbutz of the same name, was virtually untouched, but for a couple of aftershocks. Jack stepped out into the conservatory, opening the door into the back garden to let the air flow before sitting down. So it's more like a collapse or an explosion than an earthquake? There was a pop in the kitchen as the kettle reached the boil. Which of course backs up your theory. He heard another voice on the other end of the line, then silence, indicating Abelard had put his hand over the receiver. After a moment he came back. It gets worse. We've just had confirmation that their sentinel, Gilad, was killed. This can't be a coincidence. We'll hopefully have more to report soon. In the meantime, he looked up and mouthed cheers as Abby placed two cups of tea on the end table before sitting down. In the meantime, carry on as normal. Now make sure your outfits are aware of developments. Once we know more, we can adapt orders as necessary. A short pause. Now, I've got other outfit leaders to brief, so I'll say farewell for now, Jack. Okay, bye Francis. As he hung up, he saw Abby smile and returned it. So was Penny alright after you left her? Yeah, she forgot I was there as soon as she said hello to Grace and Olivia. Abby laughed. I think I'll be the one going spare without her rather than the other way round. The smile disappeared from her face. I got a call off our Lydia on the way back. Jack leaned forward and put a hand on her knee. Everything alright? No, she... She cleared her throat. Well, one of her mates died last night. Murdered. Some of her other friends found the body. That's got to be rough. Is she alright? I think so. She's made a stay and stuff, our kid. Plus, her and her mates are all very close, so I'm sure they'll support each other. Her eyes suddenly became very distant. But, I mean, it must have been horrible. It sounds like one of your cases, actually. What? Yeah. Abby refocused her gaze on Jack. Apparently whoever killed that girl bit her neck and drank her blood. She shuddered. It's horrible just thinking about it. He rubbed her knee. Then don't. This will all get dealt with. But it's our first weekend off together in Yonks and we should make the most of it. He raised his eyebrows. Especially since Penny's out the house till tonight. She giggled as he reached over and kissed her neck. Just by running his hands across her back, he could feel the tension fall from her shoulders. But even as it did, he could feel himself tensing up. It did sound like one of his cases, and no doubt he could expect a call about it later. Several hours later, Jack pulled back the sheet to expose the corpse's neck and shoulders. As his wife had described, she'd been bitten on the neck. The flesh around the bite was raised and red, the skin torn and some strips of it hanging loose. He pressed one finger from each hand, covered by surgical gloves against the corners of the wound and examined it more closely. The bite marks came from teeth far sharper than a human's, either fangs or filed to a point. Shit, Jack muttered. He turned his attention to the corpse's mouth, and it was clear that blood and vomit had been wiped away. He pried the mouth open, ran a finger across and did a quick visual examination of the teeth. After a second check confirmed nothing out of the ordinary, he sighed and took his hands away from the mouth. Nothing more to see, he pulled the sheet back over her head and left the room. 
After removing his gloves and mask, washing his hands and changing back out of medical scrubs, he took out his phone. When Mike answered, Jack said, Gather everyone for a meeting tonight. Abelard's given me some worrying information, which I can't go into here, but there's also a local problem which I think needs to be dealt quickly before it gets out of hand. You at the mortuary investigating that attack from last night? Yeah. Vampire? Yeah. When was the last one we had like that? There was a pause, then the sound of paper rustling. I remember we had a brief spate of them in. Here we are, 2011. After that, nothing out in the open. They got good at hiding. Well, it looks like they're getting cocky, Jack said. We'll discuss it properly tonight. He hung up the phone and looked over at the pathologist at the desk nearby. He quickly went back to pretending to read the local paper. Jack shook his head and made his way out of the building. Booth was surrounded by a pile of old books on the floor in his living room when his doorbell rang. It took him a moment to realise what the sound was. He never had visitors, and it had been too long since he'd had the kind of acquaintances who might be inclined to visit him. The doorbell rang again, and he forced himself to his feet to answer it. He opened the door, and was confronted with the sight of a woman he hadn't seen for a very long time. An aisle? He said. Booth? The clothes were different, as was to be expected, but everything else was exactly the same as he remembered from the last time he had seen her. Her hair fell in soft brown waves and her dark skin had a golden glow to it. She wore a coat whose tail came past her knees, telling him she was concealing a short sword. A memory arose in his mind. The red and black glow between them had faded, the wind had vanished, and they had stood facing each other in the empty ruins of Telmegado. She had swallowed tears rolling down her cheeks. She hadn't said a word, only shook her head and turned away. He'd been unable to move or to do anything but let her go, vanishing from the hill and from his life. Can I come in? His reverie vanished and he blinked several times. Uh, yeah, sure. And Niall stepped across the threshold and wrapped her arms around him. He returned the embrace, still feeling numb as though none of this was real. After she broke the hug, he led her through to his living room. She glanced at the pile of books on the floor, then back at Booth. You've heard about Talmegado? Yeah, after I saw it in a dream. That's why you're here, I take it? Yeah. Her eyes glistened. Booth, I'm sorry. I never should have walked away. Don't worry. It was a lifetime ago, he said though the memory was still fresh in his mind. Several? But that doesn't make it right. Anna. She knelt to pick up one of the books on the floor. She wouldn't meet his eyes. He decided to let the subject drop for now. So it's definitely true then? She looked up at him. The earthquake happened under a blood-red moon. It was followed by a meteor shower. That's not all though. He had known Anaya long enough, despite the gap since he had last seen her, that he could see her hesitation in what she was about to tell him. He crouched next to her. Anna? She stared at him for several moments before dropping her eyes. There's a new champion. Where? Liverpool. Ah. Uh, I should have been there. Teaching him about his destiny and training him to use his powers. 
but I haven't been able to bring myself to go back there after so long. I'm still not sure I'm ready. It's okay. I haven't been back either. Not since... You didn't have to. She stood up and walked several paces away from him. I felt this new champion's birth. He's 23 now. That's more than enough time. And I stayed away because I couldn't handle it. It might be too late now. Because we don't know who else could have gotten him to him first. Ruth stood up. It's not too late. He said. Come on. Come on where? Liverpool? I think I know who might be able to help us. What's the agency then? Jack asked Mike as he entered the library a day later. Why didn't you raise it at the meeting last night? Inside, sitting at the table in the middle of the room, were a man and a woman he didn't recognise. Jack walked to the table and pulled out a chair, but didn't sit down. Jack, this is an island, Pwilth, Mike said, stumbling over the pronunciation of Pwilth. Abelard phoned and told us to expect them. Pwilth helped him take care of a Lindworm down in Surrey a few years back, apparently. This is Jack MacArthur, head of this outfit. Jack shook hands with them. Pwilth, unusual name. The newcomer shrugged. My parents were big on Welsh mythology. I see. So what can we do for you? Do you know anything about the Champion of Man? Jack shared a look with Mike, then shook his head. You've got us at a loss. He said, Care to tell us what you know about this Champion of Man and why it's so important? The Champion of Man is basically someone born with power. Kind of like a Sentinel, only a lot stronger and a lot rarer. And Isle said, We believe there's a champion here in Liverpool, although he probably doesn't know that he is one. The reason he's here now is that there's something bad coming. Jack recalled the discussion of the previous night's meeting. This something bad, he said. Does it have anything to do with what happened at Talmegado? Yes. Abelard said it was a gateway to hell. It is. It's been opened. Jack went cold. So what got out? Not what, Puth said. Who? His name is Noir Dwyane Dawn. Jack didn't recognise the name, but from the look on Puth's face, Jack knew that it was bad news. Chapter 3 When Hazel Lohman reached her front gate, she stopped and pulled a bubble out of her hair. She still felt tired and couldn't get the smells of meat and dairy out of her nose. But just being able to shake her wavy strawberry blonde hair loose made her feel that bit better. When she put the key in her front door and turned, the door was pulled open from inside. She yelped, before clamping her hand over her mouth. Hazel, her father stood at the door, chuckling. Sorry if I startled you. She felt her cheeks burning as she stepped inside. Hi dad, yeah, no worries. How was work? It was work, she said with a shrug. There was a yip, and their Labrador puppy Rosie dashed out of the living room to dance around her feet. Hazel's younger sister Lucy followed the animal, still wearing her school uniform. She was like a miniature version of her big sister, with the same hair and even the same pout when she was annoyed. Hazel stroked the dog's head and said hi to her sister, before their mother came out of the living room to call Lucy back in. Melissa shot an apologetic look to her husband and said hi to her daughter before closing herself in the living room with the child and the dog. 
Hazel took off her bag and dropped it at the bottom of the stairs, then unpinned her name tag. She stared at the words, happy to help, just below her name for a moment before dropping it into her bag. Is this happening then? All set to go when you are. Joel's waiting out back. Joseph Lohman looked youthful for a man fast approaching 50, and still in good shape at that. He headed through the kitchen into the back garden. She gave a sigh and followed her father out to a covered deck in the top right corner of the garden. The furniture had been cleared from the deck and a three-branched gold candelabra placed in the middle of the floor, the candles currently unlit. A red cushion had been placed either side of it at about arm's length. Joel Morris was waiting for them there. Alright Joel, she said. At 18, he was a year younger than Hazel, and at 5 foot 8, he was around the same height. Looking so youthful and buzzing with nervous energy, belied the weight of the responsibility that fell to him. Noting the leather sheath at Joel's side, the bronze hilt emerging from it, her stomach tensed and she clenched her hands into fists, though more at the thought of what came after the ritual than of the steel cutting her flesh. She had trained for most of her life, and she was committed. She wanted to do this, and yet now it was upon her, she couldn't account for that heavy feeling in the pit of her stomach. Hey, Joel laughed. Warm sunlight isn't really the best atmosphere for an ancient bloodletting ritual, is it? Hazel glared at him, not in the mood for his sense of humour. Joel flushed and cleared his throat. Never mind. Should we get on with it? He bent down and lit the candles between them as Hazel and her father knelt on either side of the candelabra. The flames didn't flicker in the still air. Joseph, hold out your left hand. Hazel watched Joel draw the blade at his side. A dagger no longer than a large kitchen knife. As the tip of the blade touched her father's palm just below his index finger, she remembered to breathe and let out a whistle of air. Say the words. I am Joseph Lowen, sentinel of the bloodline of Seaman, and my duty is done. I kneel and with open arms offer the gift of blood to my successor. He didn't wince as Joel drew the blade across his palm, producing a line of red. Hazel, Born of my blood, once again take the gift of my life. Hazel? She held out her right hand, felt the cold steel touch her flesh, and spoke. I am Hazel Lohman, of the bloodline of Simon, and my blood is the blood of the sentinel before me. She did wince, as she felt the steel move across her palm, more from expectation than from actual pain. Father, I accept your gift gratefully and vow to carry on your work. Now press your palms together. When both did this bid, Joel clamped his own hands around them. She felt a tension in her arm as he pushed both hands down towards the highest flame on the candelabra. She tensed up as the flame touched her skin. Then Joel muttered some words in a language she didn't understand, and the flame expanded to engulf their hands. He spoke louder now, in English. Time passes and man grows old, but the work of a sentinel is never done. From father to daughter, inheritance passes, and the fire of Simon's struggle burns on. Hazel closed her eyes. Her head swam and she had to put her free hand on the floor to brace herself. Her breath quickened and she felt something soft and cold run up the skin of her back. Then it was done. Opening her eyes, she suppressed a gasp as she took in the sight of her father. All at once he looked his age. There were more lines in his face, and a streak of grey had overtaken his hair. He still looked healthy, but there was no doubting the sudden transformation. 
She looked away. Hey, I'm fine, he said. Though he grunted as he rose to his feet. Anyway, how do you feel? She hopped to her feet with far more ease than her father. Sound, actually. She laughed at how odd the words sounded after the arcane formality of the ritual. Joel cracked a smile as well. Well then, her father said. You should be up for your first challenge as Sentinel. Joel was in good shape and had sharp instincts, as she had seen when the two of them trained together. But where with the ritual behind her, she now felt at ease, as if this was exactly how things were meant to be. He had hardly stopped chattering since. What do you think motivates people to fall for them? He was asking. I mean, I get the romance and all that around the gothic imagery and that. Well, I don't get it exactly, but I know that it's a thing. But this isn't some person dressing up a certain way to try and entice a lover. This is a thing, Lauren and Prey. Victims. It's not human. More than that, it's dead. So you would have thought that... Joel? Yeah? Shut up. He closed his mouth and they carried on walking, air shouldering the weight of the whole door with their weapons in. But it didn't bother her. In truth, Joel's words had sent her mind somewhere else. A voice whispered in her memory. I love you. I want you to be mine. Forever. She gritted her teeth. Joel was right. They weren't humans. They were things. And they had to be destroyed. She had learned that lesson the hard way some years ago. But that didn't mean she needed him reminding her of it. When she looked over, he still had his eyes down to the ground. She had upset him. She sighed and rolled her eyes. I'm sorry. He looked over at her, eyes wide. I just need the quiet to think this through, that's all. I didn't mean to upset you. It's okay, I'm not upset. The way he puffed his chest out told her that was a lie. She smiled. Alright then, how about we get this done? Katie struggled against the rope around her arms, but the knots wouldn't budge. A dull throb pulsed through her arms and the streams of tears burned her face. It's not so bad, the other girls cooed from behind Nathaniel. We all had to go through it. You come out stronger at the other end. Still, she strained and pulled against the rope, until Nathaniel smiled at her and revealed his true face. His beautiful pale skin turned yellow and grey and his face became the face of a monster. The web of veins, the bloody red eyes, the skin drawn back so far that he looked like a skull. The teeth like those of a shark. Her breath caught in her throat. She wanted to scream, but instead all she could do was gasp. Then his mouth was on her neck. Several hours later, she still felt lightheaded. There was a burning in her neck, covered over with a bandage. She swam in and out of consciousness, and in the moments where everything went dark she saw her mother's face heard her voice scolding her about Satanism and witchcraft. She laughed in the face of her imaginary mother, the laughter becoming tears as she jerked herself back to reality. A crash downstairs stopped her tears. It was followed by more noises, grunts, smacks, clatters, screams. It sounded like a fight, but with who? The door burst open and one of the other girls, she called herself Shade, came running in. She was gasping, crying, and looked genuinely terrified. What? Katie said, 
Shade clamped a hand over her mouth. Don't, she whispered. They'll hear you. They'll kill us. They've already killed Nathaniel. Her breathing quickened and her mouth twitched under Shade's hand. Shade ran over to the door, remembering it was still open. As she closed it over, it flew inwards, splintering and knocking her over. She held her hands up, pleading. The attacker, a girl with strawberry blonde hair and a slim, athletic figure, didn't listen. She swung the sword in her hand, decapitating Shade in one clean blow. Her head rolled over to Katie's feet, now trapped in the same horrific form she had seen Nathaniel in. This time, Katie did scream. The young man followed the girl into the room. He was the same age as the girl, short and lean. He looked briefly at Katie, then at the girl, but no words had passed between them. He picked up the head in one hand, dragged the body by its collar with the other, and disappeared. Did you ingest any of its blood? Did I... what? The man who brought you here. He fed on you. Did he make you drink his blood? Both her voice and her manner were sympathetic, which calmed Katie down somewhat. Uh, no. No, I never. He... Before she could say any more, the girl raised her sword and swung. Katie winced and cried out. Her arms came free and she slumped to the floor. When she looked up, the girl had lowered her sword and was offering her a hand. I'm Hazel, she said as she helped Katie to her feet. The man and women who had you tied up were vampires. They're gone now. Let's get you out of here and home. She could think of nothing to say except, okay. She followed Hazel out of the room and downstairs doing her best to ignore the trail of blood where Shade's body had been dragged. In the hall, it joined up with five other trails that all led out into the back garden. The lad Hazel had been with came back from that direction shortly. Done, Hazel asked. When he nodded, she said, Katie, this is Joel. Her tone was different when she spoke to Joel, harder and more abrupt. Let's get her home and call her night then. She followed them into the street. The whole road was derelict and empty, metal or wooden boards blocking the windows and doors of the houses. How did you fall in with them? Hazel asked her. Well, the vampires. As a rule, they groom their victims rather than just snatching them off the street. I take it that's what happened to you? Where did you meet them? Grooming. It made it sound so seedy, perverted. Maybe it was, though, since Nathaniel did seem to have been building up a harem of girls that he could have his way with whenever he wanted. Forever. She shuddered at the idea. They came out of the street onto one with lights on and more traffic, making her realise she had been silent for some time. It's okay. Take your time, Hazel said. Katie shook her head. No, it's okay. I go to this club called Sanguine. It's like a goth club, you know. I made friends with Shade there, and she said she would introduce me to this really cool guy called Nathaniel if I was up for it. Well, she gestured. Right, yeah. Hazel shared a look with Joel that Katie couldn't interpret. So where's Sanguine? Oh, no. Katie shook her head. I don't think they knew anything about it. They're really nice people, they wouldn't condone that kind of thing. Maybe not, but there might be others who would pull the same trick in there. We'll need to find out. Right, okay. Well, it's in an old warehouse a bit down from the camp of Fairness, she said giving some directions so that they could find it. After that, they carried on walking, mostly in silence, until she realised the direction they were walking in. Wait, are you taking me home? Yeah, Joel said. 
Your mum reported you missing three days ago. And then today, someone tipped off the police that they thought someone was being held hostage on that street. And gave a description that matched you. You're really lucky, actually. Usually by the time we find these nests, the people who've been taken to them can't be helped. Joel. Hazel snapped. It's true, he said with a shrug. Yeah, but... Katie stopped walking and took several deep breaths. Okay, I'm really glad you saved me back there. I promise I am. Thank you. But isn't there, like, a shelter or something for people who've been through that? What about... Joel started. She doesn't want to go home, Hazel said. She took Katie's hand firmly and looked her in the eye. Look, love, I know what it's like when you feel like you can't handle your family. I promise I do. Maybe we can help. Katie swallowed and straightened up, her resolve hardening. You cannot tell my mum that you found me. Or tell her I'm dead. Yeah, tell her that. I bet she doesn't even cry. I bet she says it was my own fault and I deserved it or something. Tell her that. We can't tell her you're dead. Hazel said. But if you don't want to go back, we can help you. Katie felt her eyes watering. She didn't know Hazel. And in all likelihood, she would never see her again after tonight. But in that small space of time, she'd saved her life and promised to help her get a fresh start. It was more than anyone had ever done for her. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. She said as she threw her arms around Hazel and caught her in a hug. Hazel was still awake as the sun came up outside her bedroom window. She had gotten home not too long after one in the morning, once she had made sure that Katie had somewhere to sleep for the night, and someone responsible for making sure that she made out okay. But despite how long a day it had been, starting with a 7am ride for her last shift on checkout, she didn't feel at all sleepy. She wasn't particularly wired either. She just had what her mum would call a busy mind. Katie hadn't told him what her mum had done to her, that she would rather be thought dead than go back. And she hadn't asked. Seeing how much it had affected her had been enough, though the downside was that it now left her speculating on too many grim possibilities. She'd never had to deal with anything like that, and comparing the angst and drama of her mid-teens to that was probably doing it a disservice. Yet, for that, was the result all that dissimilar? Out of her earshot, Joel had called Katie a fool, and Hazel had chastised him for it. But in truth, he was right. She just didn't like the implications of that. She closed her eyes and rubbed at her temples. She needed a distraction, something to clear her head so that she could get some sleep. The fact that she had been coming up on 23 hours awake ruled out running as an option. Her mind went to the vibrator buried under her sock in her bedside cabinet. That would do the trick without any particularly strenuous effort on her part. Just then, there was a knock on her door and she turned to see Lucy cautiously peering into the room. Hayes, Mummy and Daddy say it's too early to get up. Will you make me some Frosties? The vibrator would have to wait then. She smiled at her younger sister and got up off the bed. Sure, why not? But we'll have to be really quiet, okay, Luce? Lucy nodded, then took Hazel's hand and let herself be led downstairs. Chapter 4 In the warmth of the crematorium, Miles could feel the sweat pooling under his armpits. He knew that there would be visible stains there, and so kept his arms tight at his sides. In the moments of silence that the service offered, he became conscious of his breathing. He held his breath to avoid breathing too loudly, only to then realise how odd a long exhale would appear, and having to release it in shallow breaths. The priest's words reached his ears, but he never took them in. 
He put his hands together when needed, stood and sat on cue, but his thoughts kept wandering. Would as many people turn out for his funeral? What would they say about him? It was a pity that he wouldn't be able to write his own eulogy. He wouldn't want this kind of service anyway, with everyone just looking at his coffin and being sad. The prayers went on for too long as well, as though they were dragging it out just to throw a bit of faith at the non-believers. He shouldn't have been thinking about stuff like that, but what was he supposed to think about? He closed his eyes for the silent reflection, and his mind's eye showed him the skip. The shadow slumped against it, the body which now lay in the wooden box at the front of the room. He opened his eyes and stared at the ground, swallowing down the lump in his throat. At the end, they were led out to the door at the back. They were all supposed to share condolences while waiting for the cars to come back around and take the family off to the wake. He recognised Michelle's mum and took her hand, offering her a sombre nod and a mumbled, I'm sorry for your loss. After that, he retreated to a corner to avoid having to do it again. Why was it so hard to get the actions right even when the feelings were genuine? Better to avoid having to do it, to make less mistakes. Shortly, his friends joined him. Then the cars departed, giving everyone else leave to make their way to the venue for the wake. Conversations quickly returned to ordinary volumes as they started walking away from the building. Once they were back at the front, by the car park, then it was safe to light cigarettes. The wake took place at a British Legion social club not far from where Michelle's parents lived. They were gathered around a couple of tables in the corner. Jess had spent the last half hour fiddling with an empty cigarette packet and was now picking apart the lid. Kit found himself fascinated by the movements of her hands. Me and Lydia were 17 and we were in Manchester for a ring and mortis gig, she said. Amazing band. At least, I think so, because we were stoned as fuck by the time we went in there. Anyway, afterwards we were walking back to the station when we saw this girl lying on the floor. She had blood in her hair and she was shaking. We didn't know if she was throwing a whitey, having a seizure or what. But we couldn't leave her there, so we picked her up and started dragging her to the station. Logical thing would have been the hospital, I know, but we were stoned and thought we'd get arrested. So we took her with us, and luckily she woke up along the way. Ends out, she drank till she passed out and was shaking because she was having a bad dream about spiders. Jess put her hand over her mouth, suppressing a laugh. Me and her couldn't stop giggling our tits off about that. But we were all inseparable after that. Lydia raised a glass. Was Shell? Shell? Jess agreed, raising her own glass. They all clinked the glasses before drinking deep. I missed that gig, Paddy said, the slightest smile on his face. But Shell always had a thing about spiders, ever since she was little. She couldn't stand them. They scared the hell out of her. But she couldn't kill them either. Thought it was bad luck. He looked down and sniffed. Silence followed then, until he stood up. I'm going outside for a fag, he said. Anyone else? As the only non-smoker in the group, Kit took his phone out of his pocket, ready to keep himself occupied when left alone. But Jess declined, so she was sat with him as the rest went outside. Her eyes were red, he noticed, though her eyeliner was still intact. Her hair reached down to her chest when it wasn't spiked up and he decided that he liked it better brushed down like that. She caught him looking at her, and smiled. You okay, chick? He smiled back. Yeah, I'm fine. This is all just a bit. In lieu of the right words, he waved a hand in the air. Yeah, I know what you mean. I hope they find the guy she was with. Yeah, Miles is convinced he's seen him before, watching us and stuff. But I don't know, it's too weird and horrible. 
In her hands, the cigarette packer finally came completely apart. After the artificial light of the windowless function room, the glare of the sun took them by surprise as they stepped outside. It was harsh enough that they couldn't stand by the door, and had to seek refuge in a shady spot around the side of the building to light up. Manifanic one? Lydia asked Miles. He took another out of the pack, stuck it in his mouth, and used the end of his own to light it. He blew the smoke out as he presented it to her. Fresh off the rack. She grinned. Ah, uh, I didn't realise I'd smoked the last of mine on the way from the creme. I've gone from like 20 a day to about 60 in the past couple of weeks. 60? Paddy snorted. I'm pretty sure I could have done in that many first thing this morning, if my lungs would have allowed it. His brown hair was cropped, just about long enough for a fringe. He had a young face, making him look closer to 16 than 24. An impression strengthened by a small, slender stature, as well as his hair and clean-shaven face. When he finished his cigarette, Paddy headed back inside. But Lydia was still smoking, and Miles hung back to wait for her. How are you doing, Mike? She asked. His mind returned to the shadow propped against the skip. He shrugged. I'm okay, I think. How about you? Yeah. She was still smiling, but now it made her look so much more pained. Vulnerable. The moisture in her eyes glistened with the sunlight. It's strange, ain't not being around, you know. I just keep thinking I should have done what you said. What's that? Taking more weekends off. Oh, right. Wise man who ever told you that. He has his moments. She caressed his arm lightly, absently. He tensed up and felt his cheeks flush and heart rate quicken. Nah, to be honest, I'm terrible at all that sort of stuff. You know where people are upset and need consoling? I never know what to say. I think everyone's the same. She stubbed out her cigarette. Maybe. But even the little phrases and the stuff you'd expect it to say. I either forget to say it or it sounds awkward coming out of my mouth. I don't know. You're overthinking it. She reached in his pocket and took out his cigarettes. You mind? When he shook his head, she lit two up and stuck one in his mouth. It does get a bit much though. Just because of the reason we're here, even having a drink, it feels like I need to take a break from it. Well, if you want to come with, I'll need to go to the shop in a bit. Someone's been smoking all my fags. Outrageous behaviour. Their hand touched his arm again and he found himself smiling. It was dark now. Lydia's head was swimming. It was the wine that had done it. How much had she drank in the past few hours? Four bottles? Five? Still, it wasn't an unpleasant sensation. There was something about watching the orange glow of the sunset while smoking, with her head feeling as though it was floating several inches above her body that was kind of enthralling. She was just finishing her cigarette when Paddy came out. He gave her a hug and a kiss on the cheek, announcing that his taxi was almost there and that he would see her tomorrow. You take care of yourself, alright? Lydia said. Call me if you need anything. Anything at all. Yes, Mum, he said, clicking his tongue and rolling his eyes. I'm serious? Lydia's phone buzzed in her pocket. She took it out and saw the text from her dad. Shit. The baby's sick. I'm gonna have to get off myself. A taxi pulled into the car park then. This is mine. Do you want to take it? I'll call another one. Now, you... Lid, honestly, I'm not in a hurry, so stop being daft. Get home to your sick kid. Lydia gave a frustrated sigh. But she knew that she wasn't going to win the argument, so she ended up taking the taxi. A ten minute ride later, and she was back at home, talking her two-year-old daughter back to bed. 
Had he took longer to get home, opting to walk rather than wait for a taxi. But it was warm enough, pleasant summer's night, so he didn't mind too much. The fact that he had enough alcohol in his system that he wasn't exactly walking a straight line may have also been keeping him warm. Despite this, he managed to reach his door in a little over half an hour. Shortly, music blared out from the living room and he had a lit joint in one hand. The hot ice smothered the grief and he spent the rest of the night slumped on the couch staring at but not really watching the television. He may have eaten a pizza at some point, but it wasn't a detail his mind held on to. At some point the doorbell might have gone, but that wasn't a certainty either. He slipped more than once between sleep and waking. The living room around him gave way to a darkness filled with strange shapes. Faces that disappeared when he tried to look at them straight, throwing him back into wakefulness, but only for a moment. Words came out of his mouth, but he was hardly aware of what they were, or who they were said to. He snapped back to the present when he felt something sharp dig into his neck. His mind took several moments to reconcile his last memory of being in the house with the fact that he was now on the street. He couldn't focus on the face of the man now holding him, biting him. Before he could begin to make any sense of it, he felt his strength waning and he slipped away again, this time not into the stupor of his high, but into the cold black. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this and want more, then you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, AK Black and Red, or search for From the Hill of Mekido on your favourite podcast service. Next week, we'll be going into chapters 5, 6 and 7 to see where Miles' search for answers leads him. See you then!